Hello, creeps. I'll be your ghost. I mean host. As we delve the crypts of spooky movies and even spookier theory. Welcome to Horror Vanguard. <laughs> How do we explain American politics if not through the metaphors of the Gothic? <laughs> I think that's a perfect lead-in because we, we are, we're a politics podcast and we're a Gothic podcast, but thank God we're not an American electoral podcast because then we'd really be a nightmare. Uh, yeah, drum rimshot goes here. Yeah, certain kinds of horror I don't want to expose myself to any more than <laughs> once every four years. Like, that's fine. <laughs> Hello, listeners. Good morning. Good evening. Good uh, uh, void time if you are in one of the hidden dimensions of gothic evil. I am one of your co-ghosts, Ashley Darrow, joined as always by John, a.k.a. The Liquor Guy. How is it going, John? Uh, yeah, as someone who resides in one of those uh, void dimensions of gothic evil, otherwise known as the UK, uh, we're doing great. <laughs> we're doing fine. <laughs> Oh, and we're not we're not alone today. The crypt is being haunted by a, a fellow uh, student of the Gothic. We're joined by Maisha Wester. How's it going? Doing pretty good, all things considered. I mean, yeah, America is just doing its best to be the nightmare country out of every Gothic fiction and horror film. But, you know, <laughs> it'll be it'll be interesting. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> Oh, thank God we're here to talk about vampires today and only, I think, marginally American politics on top of that. Or probably massively American politics now that now that I'm waking up with this coffee a little bit. <laughs> uh, so, Maisha, um, would you mind telling our listeners a little bit about yourself? So I am currently a global professor sponsored by the British Academy, and I'm hosted at the University of Sheffield. Um, and I've been here since September of 2020. We moved in the middle of the pandemic. That's how bad things were in Indiana, the heartland. Um, my home institution is Indiana University in Bloomington, where I'm an associate professor of American studies and of African-American and African diaspora studies. So my research is on uh, racial representations in Gothic literature and horror film. And um, more recently, I've really started focusing on sociopolitical appropriations of Gothic tropes and horror film tropes in discussions about racial minorities. So yeah, the last few years have been keeping me. Oh, that really honestly sounds busy. extremely exciting. Yeah, it's, <laughs> that sounds it's, about right. I have way too much work to do now, you know. Whereas, you know, you sometimes worry as an academic that you're not sure where your next project is going to come from. I'm having the reverse problem, and it's a nightmare. Not just because there's so much to do, but because it's the kind of work that we shouldn't have to be doing in the 21st century. Um, so yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm not going to run out of things to write and rant about for uh, a while. <laughs> that, that, I, that I think is, uh, and I think this meta metaphor might be a little appropriate given the film we're talking about today, but I feel like that's a cross that a lot of Gothic academics who eventually, uh, dive into the political side of things have to bear. Yeah. Um, that's a good pun. <laughs> It's um, to carry that forward to thinking about ganja and Hess. It's, you know, the shadow of history that's, you know, blighting us, that's destroying all light and hope at the mm -hmm. current moment. And the thing is, I think we're in a 
position now um, where we can't ignore the ways in which the Gothic has always been political, right? It's just a question of how um, mm-hmm. explicit or imp- versus implicit it's been. But I mean, we're at this place where l- so much of reality is being presented and reads like Gothic fiction. And I was just thinking the other day, you know, um, the ways people talked back between 2016 and 2020 about the ways in which, you know, Trump was saying things that were obviously a lie, um, but that they felt like truth. They felt like they were facts, um, despite Mm -hmm. that they were obviously easily disprovable, um, that they felt true is because so much of what Trump was saying at the time was pulled from Gothic narratives and Gothic plots. So his whole thing about immigrants, coming over the wall to pillage and rape and destroy our country. That's like the plot of Dracula. And Americans love Dracula. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it's like, you know why it feels right? Why we it do. feels like a fact? It's because it's the story of Dracula. You know this story. He's just feeding you back <laughs> the same fiction. Only he's presenting it as immigrants, not vampires. Ugh. Phenomenal point. I like that. <laughs> I like that in a horrible way that I like a lot of gothic approaches to politics. It's like, I like this, but I would like to have not needed to like this. <laughs> so you are joining us today uh, in part uh, uh, because of your excellent work on uh, the gothic and politics, but also because of Gothic Futures, a summer institute over at Sheffield University in the UK. Uh, could you let us know a little bit more about that? Yes. So we're uh, co-organizing a summer institute here through the Gothic Center at the University of Sheffield, which really looks at diversity in the Gothic and Gothic scholarship, but also looks at sort of adding to that diversity, right? So there's been this recent push towards looking at, for instance, African-American Gothic, at Black diasporic Gothic, at Latino, um, Latinx Gothic, um, just to name a couple, Mm -hmm. um, at Ukrainian and Albanian Gothic, um, at disability um, and embodied otherness in the Gothic um, by scholars and critics um, in a range of fields. Uh, But when you look at Gothic studies itself, the number of people that are within Gothic studies doing this work is relatively small. And so what Mm -hmm. uh, this Mm -hmm. institute seeks to do is bring those scholars doing this work into Gothic studies, to into this, the center of this conversation. Right. Um, And to thinking about how we can really encourage other people from, uh, underrepresented populations to really get into the field, to see themselves as um, having a place in doing this kind of scholarship and engaging in these discussions. And one of the things I'm really excited about is that instead of being like your traditional summer institute, which focuses just on scholarship, um, one of our uh, seminars is actually going to focus on Gothic creation. So talking about generating Gothic stories and text. Um, So um, one of the things I'm really proud of is that we're going to bring, you know, the creators of the stories of the fictions into conversation with the people that do the analysis. Um, Because I think those are some, that's a really um, fertile uh, ground for some conversation, for some interesting discussion. So I'm super excited. We have um, four 
different seminars running. You can sign up for one of four seminars. Um, and then we have, in addition, um, two daily keynotes by scholars in the Gothic or doing Gothic work um, from some of everywhere. We're doing really an international summer institute. So we have, you know, keynotes and tutors coming from India, coming from America, um, coming from the UK to contribute to these discussions. Um, And our scholars are coming from Gothic studies, but they're also coming from Latinx studies. They're also coming from Chicana studies, right? So, um, and Asian studies. So, what we're going to see is a really, I think, rich discussion um, and a rich week of discussions in this Summer Institute. Yes, I, I've always found Sheffield Gothic to be to be not at, but the cutting edge of Gothic studies. And this work that's being done through the Summer Institute is so incredibly important. Is I mean, like if you've been in Gothic studies for more than three seconds, you know that it's just like a bunch of people from England and it's not very diverse and it's not bringing in these perspectives and these voices. And it is great to see a, a kind of a tide change happening over there. Yeah, I'm hoping to. Um, I think the change is happening slowly. I'm just trying to push it along a little quicker, considering, you know, again, the, a lot of the political landscapes that we're seeing, not just in America, but also in the UK and in parts of Europe. Right. So this crazy far right push that we're seeing is happening globally and it's affecting disenfranchised mm-hmm. populations around the globe, right? So we're seeing this way in which people um, that are disenfranchised are being hit with these horrors in their different nations and cultures. I think it's time to bring us all into discussion, right? To think about, one, how the gothic mm-hmm. and horror is being used against us, but also to think about how we might appropriate the genre itself to push back and to fight for the return of the liberty and the equalities that we'd won towards the middle and end of the 20th century, which are now being rolled back. Oh, ab- absolutely. We, we have both the burden and the responsibility of, I think, extreme political pressure in this moment to do literally whatever we can. Both in and outside the academic yeah. sphere. Yeah, we have to. And we can't stay within the academic sphere, right? Um, because oh, it's yeah. as, mm-hmm. as, as great as it is to have fabulous conversations with each other, you know, this is a climate where we have to make change happen. We can't just keep talking to each other. We can't just keep talking even mm-hmm. to our students because the world is being shaped clearly by a lot of folks that are not part of this discussion. Political change rarely comes from the halls of a university these days. Yeah, unfortunately. Although, I mean, uh, let me not be naive. Universities have done some evil as well. So let's be will. Let's be real about that. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, this is very true. Looking at you, University of Chicago, looking right at you. But I mean, with with that said, there's always the hope of of a rupture in in the fabric of this oppressive capitalistic force, right? And and part of that is bringing these people together. And even though 
what academics can do as individuals and even as groups is a little bit limited these days. The, the spark that that kicks off has unknown potentials, and I do find that to be quite hopeful. And I encourage our listeners to check out the uh, Gothic Futures Sheffield Summer Institute. There'll be a link down in the show notes and uh, perhaps more episodes on this subject coming in the future. Uh, yeah, as, and I, as I, th- I think it's, I think I, it's uh, fine for us to say that, like, uh, we will be involved. We will be involved with the, uh, in, in, and at least, well, I, I will be there because it's going to be just, it's just kind of just around the corner, basically, from where I live. <laughs> um, speaking metaphorically, but yeah, hopefully there will be some more episodes of Horror Vanguard coming uh, to kind of like keep this conversation going in the run up to the event happening. And as long as long as I can secure my vampiric plague ship in time, I will be there as well. <laughs> oh, that would be brilliant to have both of you here. Um, and what I'll say two other things for those that can't make it, can't flee um, to the UK for a week. Um, our keynotes will be broadcast online. They'll be streamed live online so you can join us remotely. Mm-hmm. But also, if you're interested in joining a community that's doing this sort of political investigation into the Gothic, right, looking at the representations of the oppressed and how it's been how the oppressed and disenfranchised have been fighting back using the genres tropes itself. Um, you might also check out the Gothic Forum if you're in academia, the Gothic Forum through the MLA, mm-hmm. um, which is really looking at radicalizing um, how we talk about the genre in America. Yeah, and I, I can't recommend this enough. Like, I, in, in so many ways, got my start in academia thanks to the good people over at Sheffield Gothic. So I, I highly recommend if you're interested in this stuff in the slightest, whether it's uh, as, as a budding academic professional or as just kind of a layperson with a strong interest, I highly recommend participating. Nothing but nice things to say about, about Sheffield Gothic. <laughs> yeah, long-time well, fans thank here. You. We are long-time long fans. <laughs> um, but I think it would be very cool if... Uh, let's, let's, let's talk about some vampires. Um, yes. As as you have uh, you probably picked up, we are talking about uh, the iconic 1970s black horror movie Gadget and Hess, um, and it is a pleasure to ask Ash uh, to do as they do on every single episode uh, and um, explain or, or offer offer a potential way in uh, when talking about Gadget and Hess. Uh, Ash, what is it about? Uh, the listeners, get your bingo cards ready. Mark <laughs> Fisher closes his review of the 1977 Chris Marker film Le Fond de la Rouge by lamenting the contemporary inaction of left political movements, writing, While we search desperately for cracks in the possible, bureaucracy that steals spider silently spins its gray web. Lufon de la Rouge is preoccupied with the question of 1968 and the apparent failures of left political movements. Yet, half a world away, a different socialist battle was being fought in one in the United States. A different kind of 68, and one with equal if not more pressing lessons for a contemporary left political body. A diverse coalition of blue-collar workers, pacifist preachers, and red-blooded communists wielded everything from community self-defense to consumer boycotts, to dislodge one of the cornerstones of the founding American racist system. People banded together, fought, suffered, and won a victory that was at once at once necessary yet insufficient and a clear choice between socialism or barbarism. 
The specter of racism, much to our great loss, haunts and resurfaces the space of socialist imagination. We're too ready to cast our own doom and look to those other, often overlooked, lessons of 1968. Ganja and Hess was released four years before Le Fondulaire et Rouge, and has a more clear-eyed appraisal of proletariat history. The reconstructed nature of Ganja and Hess, its loss and rebuilding years later, perfectly encapsulates a broader left approach to history as temporally disjointed wreckage. We have both the daunting task and the pro-utopian task of reassembling a history that has been partially lost, partially stolen, yet entirely ready for salvation through salvage. Ganja and Hess resurfaces as a landmark title, not just for gothic and horror cinema, but as a tie that binds a much longer history. Other works of art in a similar vein like Zeal and Ardor or Serpent with Feet gain another star in their constellation. Whether we want to take a walk on the gothic side of liberation theology or begin to stitch together a history that is our own, it all starts here, with us, with the humility of honest engagement. Join us and Maisha Wester as we discuss Ganja and Hess. Yes, 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 yes. I was just going to say that was beautifully done. Thank you for that fabulous oh, thank sub- you. summation to Ganja and Hess. Oh, that means so much. Thank you. As as always, as I, I always say this, uh, Ashes, Pracy are, are the thing that people listen to the show for. <laughs> it's one of one of the things that people listen to the show for. Um, and but, uh, one maybe, of these days, your words of encouragement will outweigh the kind of uh, uh, a- academic lack of uh, self esteem that I have acquired over the years. I'm I'm working on that. I'm working on that. That's that's where we're going to get to. <laughs> but maybe to to kind of start with uh, Maisha, for people who have not. Um, come across Bill Gunn's work or come across Gandra and Hess um, before, how how would you kind of contextualize this film in the kind of development of, of black horror cinema through through the 20th century? So Gandra and Hess is really groundbreaking and radical in what it does. Um, it arises in the midst of the black exploitation era of film. And really the um, impetus mm-hmm. to making this film was that um, pr- the production house came to Bill Gunn and said, oh, you look, Blackula's done really well. Can you make another vampire film for us? Another <laughs> black vampire film like Blackula for us? Cause you know, we need to bring in that money from the, the African-American audience. <clears throat> and Bill Gunn said, uh, I don't really want to make a vampire film. That's not what I'm about. But, you know, I could really use funding for this project. Mm So, sure, I'll do it. (laughs) Um, And essentially what he did was he made a vampire film in which he never uses the word vampire once at all in the film, right? Um, Instead, Mm -hmm. he presents vampirism in terms of addiction, which is a really important uh, rephrasing, especially when you talk about African-Americans, especially when you think about what comes after in the 1980s, the ways in which um, African-Americans are overly associated with addiction, right? Um, Bill Gunn, I think, is really predicting that over-association of Blackness with sort of this idea of um, just an inability to control consumption, right? But really what you're seeing in this film is addiction that's completely American, right? Um, The things that Hess and Ganja are addicted to are all the things America encourages us to be addicted to. 
Um, so what Gunn does is essentially mm. he takes, you know, the black exploitation, um, he takes that exploitative side of the black exploitation era and says, look, I know what you're trying to do and I'm going to turn it on you. You want me to do this? I'm going to take your money and I'm going to do something just far more radical and mind blowing. Now, unfortunately, once the studio saw what Bill Gunn had produced, they said, well, this isn't actually what we're wanting. This was far more art house. And actually, it might get people thinking a little too much, a little too radical. No, (laughs) we're not going to run with this. What we will do is cut it to pieces and reassemble it as some soft porn Mm -hmm. nonsense and pitch it that way. Um, it's been reassembled. I think they did it twice, right? First as, you know, um, a hatch mm-hmm. job of Gunn's original piece, just really emphasizing the sexualized aspects. And then they went through and added more sex scenes um, in the re- the second iteration of their hatch job. Um, <laughs> so they destroyed Gunn's film. I think Gunn's film was only out for like a week or two before it was pulled from theaters and just decimated Mm -hmm. right and then re-released under the same title um it was the second re-release was called blood couples um if i recall correctly um and so this has also been part of the problem and i can tell you a couple of really unfortunate stories because i had not realized that these hatch job versions were still floating around when i assigned ganja and hess to my undergrad students the first time in indiana oh no so, <laughs> yeah, that was Uh-oh. interesting. <laughs> so they came back to me and said, why did you ask us to watch soft Gotta get that and Kino like, Lorber DVD out. <laughs> like, oh, my God. <laughs> what? Oh, How is that still At out least they're there? college students. And At least they're college students. <laughs> they were amused. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I... Um, and none of that showed up on my course reviews, thankfully, though I think they might have mentioned it to their parents. <laughs> but yeah, I'm, so I'm very happy oh, no. that there's been this resurrection of Gunn's original film. Finding um, and securing rights for it is still difficult, mm-hmm. unfortunately. Um, but at least there's now awareness of how Gunn's radical art text was just manipulated and destroyed and represented um, under yep. his name by the studio. Uh, but for some some good news for listeners in the UK, uh, you can find the restored 35mm uh, cut that was, I think, shown at the Museum of Modern Art in New York in 2014. Yep. You can, f- you can find that just for free on the Internet Archive. Um, yes. And if you've, if you've never seen it, Firstly, thank God for the Internet Archive. What an absolute treasure house. <laughs> and if you've never seen it, it's... It, it, it's uh, I'm, I'm amazed that Bill Gunn is the, is the person they went to when they were like, make us another Blackula because Bill Gunn is like a playwright and a novelist and it's like and this incredibly like quite... Uh, I, the highbrow is the wrong word, but a, a very much kind of like an art filmmaker. Um, and... The, I'm I'm not surprised that he took the money and ran with it, uh, but I'm also sort of surprised that the producers were like, "This is the person we want." <laughs> well, I think what that really points to is just the extent 
I mean, just that, that's just one of the manifestations of racism, right? In Hollywood, like, oh yeah, no, yep. you're just a black filmmaker. You all are the same, right? Um, yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this person actually started out in Hollywood. Um, William Crane started out in Hollywood making series, right? Um, he came from a different background. Um, and even he had to make modifications to Blackula. Even he took what started out as really yeah. a caricature of Blackness and added, you know, some political impact as some statements on the, the tribulations of African-Americans at that time. Even he had to do that, yes. right? But the fact that they didn't see a difference between Crane and Gunn, they were like, well, no, y'all just two black two black directors you do the same thing right you'll just give us what we want and you'll make us some money that's all we need you to do mm-hmm. right that's just hollywood racism at play that's i mean that says they didn't even bother to go and look at his profile they didn't go to look at any of the things gun had done previously yeah a hundred percent yeah yeah and this movie this movie just has so much to offer in it too because this comes one year after Crane's Blackula, right? Which which is something that like I stress all the time on the show. Like people need to revisit that film. Like the the broader like horror watching audience, like you know, like tr- treats that as a gimmick movie, but it has so much more to say than just that. And then also, this movie is two years after uh, Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, which kind of uh, officially unofficially launches the black exploitation genre. And I think that this movie is is kind of like while I was watching um, Ganja and Hess prior to this recording. I was really seeing it as kind of like a fusion of both of those streams, right? Like trying to to navigate both these horrific and gothic qualities within the kind of like growing confines and expressive qualities of the black exploitation genre. Yeah, I think that's actually a really great way of seeing it, right? And honestly, clearly Gun heads more towards um Sweetback song, right? Sweet sweet ugh, I always get the title oh, yeah. twisted. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Let me write this down. It's a tongue twister of a title. Yeah, Sweet, Sweet Back's Badass Song. (laughs) Um, It's got got like this rhythmic quality to it. Yeah, and if you're not in the right place, that rhythm just does not come out. (laughs) But (laughs) yeah, I think he leans clearly more... Gun obviously obviously leans more towards uh, Van Peoples right than towards Crane. Um, oh yeah, mm-hmm. I think what he does with Crane is take some inspiration from the fact that you know Crane was able to politicize Blackula in that very opening scene, right, in which Blackula is created, where Mama Walde is acting as his very elegant. Um, amb- ambassador seeking uh, support for abolishing the slave trade, right? I think Crane took that scene and mm-hmm. said, so there is room. There is a place to do these sort of, this sort of intense political engagement um, within black exploitation film, right? I mean, I focus on the intro to Dracula, but oh, I mean, yeah. Dracula, oh, but yeah. there's a ton of other points right um where things like this statements like that point Mm -hmm. out pop up in the film um but i think crane really looked at those yep those profound moments of sociopolitical address and said okay i can do this right i can i this i can make something um Mm -hmm. that that cinemas and audience theaters will really appreciate and enjoy and welcome 
Oh, ab- absolutely. And I think you can even see this in like, like the, the, the Gothic as a mode is just so ready for political discourse because even stuff like Cliff Rockmore's uh, P.D. Wheatstraw, The Devil's Son-in-Law, which is a much goofier film than, than uh, uh, Sweep Sweepback's badass song, Blackula or Ganja and Hess, still offers like, like you know, like the this, this like, you know, biting political commentary that pops up in between all of the like gags and jokes. Yeah, right. I mean, and I think... It's hard for I, I, there have been a few writers and directors in the contemporary moment that have tried to blend comedic horror um, with the political in recent history, yep. he, recent film history, and it doesn't always work, right? So, scary movie. I'm looking at you. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. where it clearly becomes yeah. more you know, obviously more exploitative. But then you have films like The Blackening, which I think borrows heavily mm-hmm. from, you know, Van Peebles and Gunn's sort of will to go delve deep into sociopolitics. But they also have a clear sense of humor, right? Because there is that need, especially now, to laugh. When, um, you know, when Gunn produces Ganja and Hess, we were at a point where, you know, we, it was the end of the civil rights era. Uh, I don't think we were utterly disillusioned. I don't think we were utterly naive in saying that we completely accomplished the equality that we were fighting for as African-Americans, but there was more hope. Mm -hmm. There was more of a sense of a perspective brightness on the horizon. Right. Um, And so it was important for good. I think both to address Yes. And so you could think about horror, I think, in far more explicit ways, more as a warning, right? Um, This is what we're still facing, and this is what we can do to each other if we're not wary. Um, Mm -hmm. But you didn't need that... that release, you didn't need to laugh as much because it wasn't, um, we were in a, a sort of pause in terms of the horror of American anti-blackness, right? Things weren't as explicitly awful as they were in the civil rights era. Um, it was, yeah, one of those, I don't even want to say, it was like the eye of a hurricane. There was more coming, more awfulness coming, yeah. but the storm was taking a moment to just catch <laughs> yeah. its breath and get ready for the next round. I, I was just going to say, like, you you can really see this in like the kind of like tenor of like Black American cinema in the like late sixties through early seventies, because like uh, the the lead, our our uh, kind of like our leading actor here in Ganja and Hess is none other than uh, Ben from Night of the Living Dead, the one, the only mm-hmm. Dwayne Jones. So we can kind of see this, like you know, Night of the Living Dead winds up being this really just cutting political commentary uh, about the civil rights movement, about race, about the, the kind of white American appraisal of the civil rights movement. And then we, we, you know, we have three years later, we have a much more nuanced film, a film with much more complicated conversations, right, coming out in Ganja and Hess. And you can really kind of feel that, like, you know, like oh, like society grew up a lot. In, in a few years and then like oh crap we've got the late 70s into the 80s coming around the corner and that kind of sucks a lot <laughs> all the yeah, fun is gone in the was... 80s oh <laughs> god yes um but yeah so i mean i think if to compare gun to romero is really interesting right um because i think what romero does is he squeezes a ton of critiques 
about Mm -hmm. the failures of various political movements from the 60s into Night of the Living Dead, right? I mean, there's a whole critique of feminism there. Um, There's a whole critique of the anxiety around the the youth generation, the the coming generation, right? Mm -hmm. Um, There's a whole critique of domesticity, right? And it's just... Yes, he yes. puts so much into a very short film, right? And I think part of it has to do with funding. Um, Gun clearly has far more funding than Romero had, right? Um, but also, I think it's because mm-hmm. for Romero, he's still literally in the middle of it, right? He, he tells the story of driving yep. um the film to the the production house and hearing about Martin Luther King's assassination. Right. So he's yeah. still in the middle of it where Gunn at least has a few years distance to say like, oh, OK, maybe it's not so awful. Maybe things will keep swinging for the maybe things will keep heading mm-hmm. in an upward direction. Um, and then, like you said, the late 70s hit <laughs> and that illusion, <laughs> that that illusion was shattered. Which I think is, I mean, like, even that, and, like, I think this will, like, move us ahead in our little little notes here in the conversation is, like, I think in in a way, Guns, Ganja, and Hess, uh, like, presages a little bit of that coming political turn, right? You know, like, we we, we have both, we have a new conflict, I should say, in, inside of Ganja and Hess. We have new problems arising. And I think there is kind of that meditation on, like, is is this upswing which which direction is the upswing going to turn right is it going to be this kind of like there, there is something like annihilationist in part of ganja and hess right it is it's almost ganja versus hess in a way in terms of like the political appraisal of both of these characters and where they're kind of take their newfound vampiric lives oh definitely right and one of the things i think that's really interesting you know about gunn's appraisal of the successes of the civil rights movement was he starts to ask what does it mean now to actually have achieved um at least a degree of equality and integration into america is that necessarily a good thing without america itself having changed Mm -hmm. right and so what we see is hess is a successful, accomplished, uh, fully accepted academic and scholar, right? Um, but what he's been accepted mm-hmm. to into is a elitist white academy that views African yeah. art history and African history as consumptive objects, right? He's been embraced by an American culture that stresses consumptive politics, con- consumptive politics, the consumption mm-hmm. not just of material wealth, right? Not just of other cultures, but also the consumption of each other ultimately, right? And so Hess is looking now, you know, at, you know, post-civil rights is saying like, wait, what have we really been fighting to be accepted into? Is this a good thing? Maybe we should have been pushing for changes, systemic changes, not just in terms of being integrated, but also in terms of thinking about what America and American culture is. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. And and like, I was thinking about kind of queer vampiric narratives too, when I was reading this. And I think in a lot of ways, what I saw in Ganja and Hess was Hess kind of embodied this like assimilationist narrative, right? Like he, he's coming from the standpoint of like, oh, we won. 
the fight's over. I've got mine. I've got some good stuff and, and I can kind of ride the high. And me- meanwhile, Ganja is, is still in a much more complicated place. She's still wondering what can be done with the kind of vampiric powers she's achieved as like a kind of synecdoche for the recent political wins that this film is kind of musing on. Definitely. And I think she's doing that even before she becomes a vampire, right? When we first meet her, she's a really Mm -hmm. weird character to read, right? She's dressed as an elite woman. She has some of the affectations of, you know, the class elites in America. Um, She's just been returned from abroad. But the way she presents herself Right. In terms of her lexicon, she also uses, you know, very clear um, black idiom. She speaks in this kind of um, Mm -hmm. she uses, you know, street slang sometimes. Right. Um, Yeah. I'm trying to remember what she calls herself when she's telling explain to Hess how to find her. She said she's look for the meanest black. And I can't remember the exact phrase. Oh, my God. Yeah. Like the meanest, mm-hmm. evilest woman, right? And I'm like, really? What? You're embracing the stereotype of the angry black woman. <laughs> I'm so confused with what to do with you, right? But she's challenging. What does it mean to be accepted into America? Does that mean then that you have to sort of lose these signifiers of your black heritage and mark them all yep. as lesser, Right. As low class, as something Mm -hmm. to be tossed behind, you know, from as something, a marker of a previous barbaric era. Or are we saying in pushing for integration that we welcome that we're finding an America that welcomes our complex, different selves, different culture, our black idioms, our different ways of being, our anger, our rage, our sadness, our traumas, right? And the difference that those produce. So even before she becomes a vampire, she's already just messing things up, right? Challenging us to think about what it means to be a successful black person in newly integrated America. I, I think that's completely right. Like if, if even approaching Ganja from like a, a feminist perspective, uh, like, you know, like she, she is angry and goddamn right. She's angry. She's got a lot to be mad about, you know, like even if we, if we accept the kind of American high school history, uh, textbook narrative, like she's only been a person for five years in the terms of like the American legal system, right? Like, like there, there is, there is a boiling rage there that, that can barely be comprehended. So if she's going to be mad, she has every right to be the, the evilest, meanest woman in town. Absolutely. Right. And, and you know, her, the story, the backstory with her mother, I think is really interesting, right? Um, in terms of how her mother has then been taught to see Ganja not as this complex child that needs love and nurture, but as this object that needs to be fetishized, right? And needs mm-hmm. to be reminded of how she is a fetish, yeah. that she is something not to be loved, but to be deemed beautiful, um, that she needs to uh, behave by proper gender politics. She can't be out there playing in the snow with the boys, engaging in the snowball fight, right? Um, That she needs to stay in line as a girl child and much more as a black girl child, right? Um, And so that that sort of 
You know, in some ways, ganja expresses the anger that Patricia Hill Collins talks about in, you know, her book, Black Feminist Thought. And when she's talking about the dynamic between Black mothers and their daughters, right? This sense of the Black daughters Mm -hmm. feeling like, well, you you didn't express love. I didn't feel love, right, to a Black mother. And Collins is talking explicitly about, you know, um, Black women in, I think it was the 80s, 70s and 80s, right? But Black women that were not as economically privileged as Hess and Ganja are, um, but the working class mother, right, who was just fighting mm-hmm. to make ends meet against an American system that was determined to disenfranchise and destroy Black families. And the mother's response is always, Collins notes, mm-hmm. like, what do you mean I didn't love you? You're alive because of me. All I did was work yeah. to keep you alive. That is love, right? But there's a way in which that response mm-hmm. fails to acknowledge how both have been dehumanized and denied a sense of um, emotional connection by a larger systemic structure, right? That oppresses them based on class, on gender, and on race, right? And so I think you see that in Ganja's story of her mother, right? It's a real sort of turn to Black feminist um, ideology, right? Um, because, you, you know, clearly Ganja's oh, yeah. mother had to love her. Right. Um, but that she never said, I yeah. love you, only you are beautiful. That is that is exactly what Collins and, is talking about. And, and I think like like to, to build off of that before we jump into liberation theology, which is I know something John's going to have a bit to say on, is that like like even, it's even in Ganja's name, too. Right. Like the name her mother her mother picked for her. Right. Ganja, of course, like Urdu and Sanskrit for the cannabis, which, you know, like. Ganja's character is doing so much foreshadowing because we're about to hit. I mean, we are already in a political moment in the United States where cannabis laws are used unilaterally uh, to to punish people of color here in the United States. But like, we're about to hit a political moment where that ramps up, like like that goes through the roof and even echoes down into today. Where like, if you live in a state with like you know cannabis legalization, like it's often white people who own and run those shops, while there are still tons of Black Americans in prison for like the quote unquote nonviolent cannabis related offenses. And so like even even her name embodies the kind of ongoing unspoken parts of this like political conflict. Yeah, thank you for calling that to attention, right? In fact, every time I mention this film to someone that's not familiar with black uh, culture and definitely not familiar with black exploitation films, they always do a double take like ganja, G- ganja like we like yes, ganja like <laughs> weed and hess, right? Um, but mm-hmm. but even like at the turn of the twentieth century, the way in which marijuana was overly associated with blackness, it was called jazz cigarettes, you know, in the twenties and thirties, yep. mm-hmm. and jazz was the signifier of blackness, right? So, um, yeah, just naming her ganja overly associates her with this vilified aspect of American culture, which, but it's deemed primarily the realm of African-Americans, right? Um, as, I mean, mm-hmm. that was one of the wonderful things, uh, not to keep coming back to the blackening, but I love that in the blackening that that's the one legal drug they consume and that's over-associated with blackness. Mm-hmm. All the other drugs they consume are overly associated with whiteness, 
right? Um, in terms of their pill popping. Mm-hmm. But that's also the one, the drug they're smoking when they get assaulted, right? Um, so they're smoking something mm-hmm. that's highly legalized in most of the U.S., but it's still a point, still something which puts their lives in jeopardy, right? Um, so it's, it's just interesting to think mm-hmm. about that in terms of Ganja, the way in which even the signifier of her name, right, and what it's doing in the film carries forward to today. Ab- absolutely. And I think that this is a really good point to jump into kind of the the theological and gothic interpretations therein and the liberation theology uh, interpretations of this film, which I know is very much John's wheelhouse and very much not mine. <laughs> I, I think this is like from a from a from a theological point of view this is this is such an interesting film um i think one of the like really early moments that's super interesting from that point of view is um george mader um he was only in the film for the opening what uh, 30 35 minutes or so but at one point name drops almost verbatim the wretched of the earth by uh Mm, franz fanon it's it's it, what mm-hmm. you know. It just kind of like hits you like a hammer when you go, oh! And it's like it's such like an explicit articulation of of everything that you were talking about in the in the context of the of the wider struggle between like uh, the the reformist integrationist approach versus like the revolutionary systemic changes, um, I, which is which is kind of then rendered into this um, syncretic theological religious dialogue with uh you know you've got the black church and you've got the history of of african religion the history of african art all tied up in the kind of wider historical frameworks of how those have developed thanks to uh slavery right thanks to the transportation of of africans to america um i I, honestly there's just so much to unpick here i'm not quite sure where where to start even Yeah, there is a ton, right? So, I mean, so we could start with, for instance, the difference between church and religion. Because I think the film actually does a great job of distinguishing between the two, right? Um, Now, what's interesting is when you look at those uh, scenes in the Black church, the emphasis is on community, Right. And it's on an engagement between the preacher and his congregation that's clearly pulled from African culture, that call and response, right, um, between them, um, the rhythm of their connections, right, um, the way that even when he's preaching and not singing, that it still has a kind of song-like quality to it, right? You can trace that back to African cultural traditions. Um, but even, you know, the, the turn to the gospel tradition, right? The ways in which that signifies not so much religion, but that signifies, you know, ways of doublespeak in African-American culture, especially during the times of slavery. That, you know, people were seeing um, these these gospel songs and not be people would sing these gospel songs and convey messages like, well, you know, we about to run tonight, get ready. Um, or it's not safe. We're not going to run. Mm-hmm. Right. They would convey all these messages, um, through song, through gospel songs 
And the overseers and masters will have no clue, right? So gospel song serves a very important role in African-American culture and tradition, right? Um, but then to think about how that can be distinguished from religion and religion as the thing that has been warped, right? There's true religion and then there's the warped religion. So what I find really interesting in Ganja and Hess is that the scene in the church where Hess runs, goes up and wraps his arms around the cross. He can touch the cross. It doesn't destroy him. Right. Um, it's not until he's in the shadow of the cross mm -hmm. that he's killed. Right. Um, the shadow of the cross is what is destructive to him as a as a black addict. I'm not going to say vampire because gun doesn't say vampire. Right. Um, yeah. And we might think about a couple of reasons why. And the best explanation I can give for the difference between the two is actually to pull from um, Gene Toomer at the end of Cain, right, in his third act, Cabinus, he says towards the end of it, he has, you know, there's this old formerly enslaved man in the corner who's been muttering throughout the entirety of that last scene. And the man finally gets out his line. And he says, it was a sin when white folk made the Bible lie. So in other words, the Christianity that was taught to black Americans is not the true faith. It is not what the Bible actually says, right? It is a warping. And I think that's why it's the shadow of the cross that kills because a shadow is not one, the actual thing. It's not true to the figure of the thing. It's always blurred at the edges. It doesn't have the detail and intricacies, right? Um, and it's always what falls on um, populations, on um, like approaching armies when they come into contact with another army welding the cross, right? What falls on them is the shadow of the cross itself, right? Um, if you're only looking at the shadow and not the object itself, for instance, a sword becomes a cross. And so in the film stressing that it's the shadow and not the cross itself that's destructive, right? It's talking about the ways in which the religion has been warped and the ways in which violence has been warped to look like religion, to look like Christianity, right? Um, for people that are biblical scholars, I mean, there's a, a, a clearly established sense of rebellion and a rejection of oppression throughout the Bible, right? Um, there's a sense in which you're meant to love each other and not to be each other's oppressors. Um, and so the ways in which that was warped by enslavers, the ways in which that was warped by segregationists, the ways in which that's still being warped in contemporary American society, right? It's the shadow of the thing and not the actual thing. Everything that you're talking about um, and at that scene for me, what it made me think of um, is the work of um, James H. Cohn, um, author of the incredible uh, book, Black Theology and Black Power, which comes out in 1969, just a few years before um, Gander and Hess. And Cohn talks about the the idea of like uh, 
the assertion of black humanity that white supremacy denies is the gospel in America. That's what that is. Um, and, and, you know, inc- incredible black liberation theologian. Um, and and that moment of kind of the, the cross is not the thing that is the harm, right? I think is such, is is the kind of like the point at which hmm. the, the, the kind of, uh strange not not contradictions but like these creative tensions and frictions between um you know the 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 african art and history and religion and the the community of of the black church in america come to this fruition yeah i think that's absolutely correct right um thinking about i mean cuz on the one hand there are so I'm going to go back to thinking about sort of critiques of Africanism um, from the mid 20th century and into co- the contemporary moment, right? The ways in which even African-Americans have idealized Africanist religions and culture can be as essentialistic and as essentializing as what we see um, racist white Americans doing to black Americans and to black diasporic people. Right. Um, it can be as problematic because it fails to acknowledge difference. It fails to acknowledge the fact that Africa is not just one country. <laughs> it's a lot of other countries of very disparate mm-hmm. religions, faiths and beliefs. Right. Um, so I think, you know, what you saw with black liberation theology was a move away from this sort of essentializing behavior, this essentializing um, view of African culture and African religions that was engaged by African-American artists and uh communities in the early 20th century and to say like, look, we are African American. We are black American, right? America is our home. And for better or worse, we were raised in a Christian country, right? This is our faith. Why then should we utterly abandon it to think about a faith that we know nothing of and which is actually an essentialist reduction of African um, difference, Right of Af- of different disparate black cultures on the continent of Africa, um, there had to be a way to really think through. You know how do we how do we contend with what we are without allowing that to remain oppressive and subjugating, right? Um, and I think it's an important an important discourse that we actually should probably, well, not probably, we need to be returning to right now, considering the ways in which religion is again being welded against people, right? Used as a form of violence and disenfranchisement. Those are such good points uh, uh, from from the two of you. This is absolutely fantastic. Um, We are approaching an hour here. So I was wondering if anyone had any closing thoughts on Ganja and Hess. Oh, we uh, barely well, we I, I realize, like I realize <laughs> yeah, we I haven't know, talked we we haven't talked about Archie and I feel like we really should. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, let's let's round this with Archie and sexuality. I think that I think it's it's important to touch on those two. Yeah. Um Though before we touch on Archie and sexuality, I just wanted to sort of backtrack a little bit to thinking about assimilation in terms of education. Right, the ways in which the mm-hmm. of, of education, because it's really important. One of the things you know that's phenomenal about like Zora Neale Hurston, right, when she was t- commenting on the integrationist pushes, or not the 
integrationist pushes. The educational, the pushes for educational reform in the early 20th century. Um, Zora Neale Hurston was like, we don't want to go to white schools. We don't want to send our children to white schools. Y- y'all are just going to teach our kids that African-Americans don't have history or culture. No, we're, we're good at educating them. What we need are better places. What we need are more resources. What we need are buildings that aren't crumbling. Right. What we need is the same access to the resources mm-hmm. of education that you all have. So Zora Neale Hurston was like, no, nah, I don't really want integration because of what you're teaching in your schools right now. Right. Um, and I think Hess is a manifestation of that critique of American education, that it's white centric, it's Eurocentric, and it teaches African-Americans to devalue their culture, their community. And it actually denies any African-American history. Right. There's a sense of that there was no history mm-hmm. for blacks until they were enslaved. And that's obviously not true. Right. Um, But that's what you see in terms of Hess. Hess, who is a university professor and Hess, who sends his son to an elite school where they speak French. Right. And it's interesting that they're speaking French because the first um, country to destroy, to to completely destroy slavery, um, to abolish it and to claim their freedoms was also the second country in the Western Hemisphere. It's Haiti, right? A black country. And what was the language of their oppressors? French, right? So Hess is sending his son to a school mm-hmm. where they educate him in not just a colonial education, but in a kind of education that speaks directly to the history of the enslaver, right? That speaks to his black son being taught to embrace the ideology of a country that enslaved, brutally enslaved African people, right? Um, And so it's interesting that in that Mm -hmm. same school, what you see as Hess goes off for a walk, um, there's a marvelous scene where there's a close-up of this statue in a tower and Hess is walking in the background. And what you see in that statue is that its blackness is crumbling and it's grotesque, right? Bits of his nose are missing. And what you see beneath that black um, paint is whiteness, Right. Um, So that scene is an entire critique of what it means to assimilate into and uncritically embrace American culture and American education. Right. And Hess is the other critique. Hess, who is supposedly a professor and scholar of African cultures and religions, but who really just uses the artifacts as decoration. He doesn't really connect to those cultural artifacts. He sees no meaning and no value in them. They're just objects of consumption, right? And that's what, you know, the Western university, the Western educational curriculum teaches people about the history, the cultures of Africa. It's just consumption, Right. Um, it's not actually something to be engaged with, learned from and modeled upon. Yeah, I, th- I think I think those are just such strong points. And I think a lot of the same lessons that we draw from those can be applied to gender. They can be applied to class like they can be applied like like across this like 
striated, oppressed, and subaltern spectrum of peoples, right? Like the the kind of, I guess the the so the material social technologies by which these oppressions function all kind of run on on very similar engines, if you will. Absolutely. Right. And that's the thing about this film, which is phenomenal, Um, but it's also phenomenal in Romero. They're both films which understand and represent intersectionality, right, which understand oppression as essentially Mm -hmm. the same goal and thus as engaging in the same mechanisms regardless of the targets right um audrey lord has a wonderful essay on this um it's called age race sex and class woman redefining difference and in that in that essay at various points she goes through and defines racism ageism sexism classism and what you see is it's the same definition with just a different subject Mm -hmm. right um, and that's what I think Gunn is arguing. That's what I think Romero argues. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I really like where this conversation is going. And I think tying this into class and tying this into sexuality, sex and gender uh, uh, opens the door for us to talk about Archie um, and then and then sex in the in the context of Ganja and has. Uh, uh, John, do you want to kick us off with uh, Archie? I guess Archie takes. <laughs> I, I mean, uh, thinking about uh, you know exactly what you what you say there in the context of of class relationships and and this wide wider issue of like uh, you know revolutionary struggle for emancipation versus the reformist you know integration into that cl- into that class based capitalist based system. Um, the position of Archie becomes super interesting and I think is very much illuminated by everything that we've already kind of talked about. Um, yeah, I, I think this is, this is in, in a way, in a way it reminds me of some of the work of Stuart Hall and, you know, Angela Davis on the intersections of race and class as well. As well. Um, I, I, and yeah, I, you know, the, 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 I think that there are these kind of antagonisms at play on the interpersonal level, which like, play out as like no this is this is all part of that bigger picture oh definitely right and i think is why ganja is so antagonistic towards archie from the get-go i mean she goes after the man like from moment one right and i think it's because of how how happily subservient he is right and he's performing a kind of subservience that's in many ways a kind of caricature and throwback to uncle tom to be honest right and you know the Mm, idea that that mm -hmm. slang term uncle tom being an uncle tom would have been really prevalent at the time ganjan hess came out right um and so he was performing that kind of behavior, that kind of caricature, right? Um, in his refusal to show any will or ability to think, to resist, to challenge, right? Um, to act on his own. Um, that the fact, I mean, thinking of Archie, the thing that comes, that really stands out is the image of his white gloved hands, right? Um, and it's such an image of complete assimilation into this class and race positionality and a performance of respectability, right? Um, the extent to which literally Archie enables this kind of class elitism 
um, to continue. He also then enables a sort of racial elitism to continue in his performance of this intense subservience, right? Um, that he is ultimately a mm-hmm. servant of this destructive and oppressive system, right? And I mean, it's interesting to think about him in terms of performing a different aspect of respectability politics, right? He enables Hess's performance of respectability, a respectability that Ganja is actively playing with all the time, right? So she looks respectable in her apparel, in her hairstyling, in her makeup. She's very well put together, but the way she acts ain't respectable at all, right? And why am I stressing respectable respectability politics? Because this was one of the ways in which, you know, activists and scholars of the early and mid 20th century argued that we could finally access um, equality, that we could gain our rights um, as American mm-hmm. citizens, that we could gain our full rights is by performing Americanness, right? And implicit there is a kind of white Americanness, um, that we can outperform even white Americans and be even more American than the most whitest, most elitist of them. And in saying in, in doing so, we had to speak a certain way, listen to certain kinds of music, dress a certain way, and sort of constantly Mm -hmm. behave in ways that attempted to counter stereotypes, which meant denying sexual expression. Another excellent example of another another figure of respectability politics, um, if any of you have read Toni Morrison's um, Bluest Eye, Claudine is the perfect image of respectability politics. And there's a reason, I think, why, you know, um, women become sort of the center of these politics because, you know, the Black woman is overly defined as being hypersexual, as being unrapeable, right? Um, But she is also, as a woman, the ways in which... um, in a patriarchal culture, the ways in which a family might access respectability, right? If your mother acts a certain way, is acting stereotypically feminine, right? Like elite feminine um, and eschewing any sense of sexuality, of desire, of even wanting to assert herself, right? Then your family might access some degree of respectability. Now, of course, haunting all of this is the Monaghan Report, right, which says that the reason black people are so degenerate is because women are often the head of the households, either because women are emasculating and don't allow men to be the proper leaders of the home in a patriarchal household and society as it's meant to be, a whole other mm-hmm. issue there, um, or because fathers are in prison, right? Moynihan was just... He was on some stuff. Um, But what Ganja (laughs) is saying is all of this is a prison for Black people and for Black women trying to achieve a level of respectability that is purely imaginary, only alienates ourselves from, only alienates us from ourselves 
and also allows this systemic violence and oppression to continue. Because we're not saying there's something wrong with the system. We're saying the system is perfectly fine. This culture, this white American culture that's been oppressive is perfectly fine. Look, we're going to imitate you. We're going to out-imitate you. We're going to be even better and even more you Mm -hmm. than you are. Instead of saying, look, y'all, this is all fucked up. This ain't right. We, we can't continue like this. And we need to change how we define family. We need to change how we understand sexuality. We need to change, you know, how we think about even the way we speak, right? And deeming certain kinds of speech more legitimate, more intellectual than others, right? We need to change all that. I think that's why Ganja hates Archie so much because he is both the embodiment mm-hmm. of respectability and he, by his subservience, he enables it. Right, and, and even to like, you know, like, because in so, in so many ways, like, Archie is is kind of a this like figure of the class traitor, right? Like he's he's given up on any kind of like I guess progressive struggle that could be fought for, and has like thrown his lot in with like I don't know, just like a a new a new approach to the same oppressive struggles oppressive structures rather that like are just, were just so freshly like uh, uh, cast off in a certain respect. Oh, absolutely, right? I mean, and again, if. You know, I said Ganja really accesses a degree of power to disrupt the idea of black womanhood even before she's a vampire. Hess feeds on the bodies of black people before he's a vampire too, right? He consumes Archie. He consumes mm-hmm. black artifacts, yep. right? So he's a vampire before he's ever actually turned, right? Really what the knife does is make his consumption of others readily visible but he's been doing it all his life mm-hmm. absolutely yeah i think those are so, those are really I mean, I, strong points as we round to the close oh go on go on go on please i was just gonna say you know in terms of thinking about you know the co- connection between archie and sexuality right because sexuality sort of representing black sexuality is always a fraught thing to do how do you represent it without giving into stereotype, right? Without um, making it seem like you're indulging in a kind of hypersexuality. Um, you know, what comes to mind, the, the, in terms of representing Black sexuality, you know, the sort of, this line from Thomas Jefferson, who stole it from Edward Long comes to mind, right? Where he says, blacks know nothing of love. There is only the physical between them, right? So in other words, blacks don't love, we just have sex, right? That's what haunts the idea of black hypersexuality, this notion that there is no actual emotional connection. So trying to represent it is really difficult. But then a refusal to represent it is... Again, playing into respectability politics. So I think Gunn is really toying um, with that line. I think he he walks it very well, right? Where what you see between Ganja and Hess mm-hmm. is not just physical intimacy, but you also see a real emotional connection, right? That scene, um, I think they're in the attic where um, it's just the two of them in the dark and they seem naked, but the 
the camera doesn't linger on their bodies. Instead, it lingers on the close-up of their faces as Ganja relays this moment of profound trauma and sadness in her childhood. All right. Um, and I think it's a determination to reclaim the Black body from this this horror of being deemed hypersexualized that we have that concluding scene with the black man who rises utterly naked from the pond. And I love that he also has to Afro, right? He rises utterly naked from the, from Mm -hmm. the pool, not the pond and leaps over Archie's body on his way running to ganja. Right. (laughs) I mean, that's a complete rejection of respectability politics. You got a naked man with an Afro running through your backyard. (laughs) (laughs) But it's a beautiful scene, right? It's not about sexuality. Um, It's not made a scene of absolute desire. Um, Rather, it's just a scene of the Black body in its natural state without being subdued Mm -hmm. by any of this other racist bullshit. All right? And this is the body, the future that Ganja welcomes for herself. This is the future she's literally created for herself in turning this man into a vampire. Honestly, I think that's that's a that's a really powerful statement to close the episode yeah, on. I don't I don't think a mic uh, drop moment. A mic yeah, drop yeah. moment. <laughs> There's, there's, there's really no topping that. Um, so thank you, thank you so much for that. That's a that's something very powerful to end on here. Um, uh, just before we before we head out on this episode, would you like to uh, remind our audience one more time uh, about the upcoming events at Sheffield and where our listeners can find more about that and find more about your work? Yeah. So again, like. We're going to have so many more discussions like this that are even more awesome um, at the Gothic Future Summer Institute <laughs> at the University of Sheffield. It's going to take place July 8th through July 12th this coming summer. Um, if you can't make it to Sheffield to be part of it, that's okay. Uh, our keynotes will be streamed live online, so be on the lookout for that. Um, you can find more information about the Summer Institute at the Gothic Center webpage. There'll be a link for it, I believe. Um, in the show notes. So I hope to see some of you there yes. um, for what's going to be an amazing week. Excellent. We look forward to this event so much. And whether in person or as the digital audio only ghosts you're used to, uh, the host of Horror Vanguard will be there as well. Uh, thank you for joining us, Maisha. And uh, yeah, uh, we, more more episodes soon. Goodbye, everyone. We're terrible at closing these episodes. <laughs> <laughs> pleasure thank you for having me we hope you've enjoyed the dread discourse until next week stay spooky